Thank you so much. Expectation of hope. What a great, great thought here at Christmas time. You can be turning in your Bibles to Matthew 2, or turning in your phones, if you will, or you'll see it on the screen. Our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 2. In our series of Advent this time, we're going to be looking at different characters that were a part of this Christmas season. And so today, we start with the villain of Christmas. Everyone knows that every good story has a villain. And there is a villain in this story. And so, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, we read about Herod. Okay, so let's start with verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came at rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all the region who were two years old and under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of God. 
Have you ever noticed that Matthew is the only one that included the story of Herod in the Gospels? Of the four Gospels, Matthew is the only one that spoke about Herod and his part in the Christmas story. It's not hard to understand because, you know, there, there are a lot of material to be used by the gospel writers. But for some reason, Matthew chose to include the story of Herod. It'd been easy to leave him out because, you know, frankly, I've never seen a nativity scene with Herod apart. And so it'd been easy to leave out that part. But I think there's two different reasons specifically that Matthew included this part. First is just simple history. He is recording what is happening. But secondly, as we read the Gospel of Matthew, you, you see that uh, he presents Christ as the king of the kingdom. The Gospel is Matthew, of Matthew is about the kingdom. And so he choose, chooses to devote 18 verses of our verses to the story about Herod and his place. In the narrative of Christmas. So I think that there's going to be benefit for us in the macro level to see why he included that. But also I think there's some really strong personal application that we can take from this story of Herod and Christmas. The, the villain of Christmas. So we're going to look at it very simply. We're just going to see the story. Then we're going to go deeper and then seek to apply it personally. So the story. So Matthew begins this portion of his account by telling us that Jesus was born in the days of Herod the king. And he frames his whole gospel around this clashing of two kingdoms. Matthew wants the reader to know, he wants you and I to know, that all was not well in the world when Jesus came into it. It was a place of, of war and of intrigue and of conflict and corruption. Injustice and fear were the rule of the day. And at the heart of this brutality and this hostility stood Herod the king. Judea was under the role uh, or under the rule of Rome. They were being occupied. By Rome. Now, here in America, thank the Lord, we don't know what it means to be really to live under the occupation of an oppressive government. But I've seen enough stories about World War II and how uh, when Germany went into different European countries, what the oppression must be like when you are oppressed by a foreign power. The Jews in Judea were oppressed and held down and there was hostility and, and graft. They lived in a culture of fear. Human rights were non-existent for the Jews when Jesus came. Rome was the ultimate authority and its strong arm would be felt everywhere. The Roman presence... In Judea was Herod. He was called Herod the Great. 
not because he was a great guy, not because everybody admired him, but because he built great big things. Uh, I am told that if you go to Jerusalem today, you can still see some of the great aqueducts that Herod the Great built some 2,000 years ago. And we know from the biblical accounts as well that he rebuilt the Temple of Solomon. And it wasn't because he had this great love for the, the Jews. It was because he wanted great monuments to himself. He was self-obsessed. It was all about Herod. And this self-absorption found further expression in how ruthless he was and how paranoid he was. His rule was characterized by violence and fear. His only thought was to protect his position and protect his authority and protect his control. So much so that he would murder. He killed all the remaining members of the Hasmonean ruling family. Um, These were the Maccabeans. Do you remember in history the Maccabean revolt? These were the royal family of, of Jerusalem, and he wiped them out. He killed many of the Sanhedrin, those who, the ruling class of Jerusalem. But also, he killed his own family. It is said that he killed his wife, executed his wife, executed his mother-in-law, and three of his own sons, simply to protect the throne. Sue is a wicked guy. He also had plans for the rulers of Jerusalem after he died. He left an edict that said that after, on the day of my death, that the army was to, to corral all the leaders of Jerusalem into the Hippodrome and kill them so that they would not succeed him. That guy is self-obsessed. This is the ruler of the country where Jesus and when Jesus was born. Oh, by the way, thankfully, they didn't carry out his his last edict, because what was he going to do, right? This is the guy that was in charge of Jerusalem, ruling in Jerusalem. And so the wise men, the magi, came in, and evidently this entourage was pretty uh, splendid. And so all of Jerusalem saw this entourage come in, and they were afraid. And they were afraid because they were asking, where is the king of the Jews? Where was he born? They entered into Jerusalem asking about the one who was born king of the Jews. Now, this is the guy that we've been talking about who killed his own sons. And Matthew writes that all of Jerusalem was disturbed. I think that's the understatement of the gospel. They were frightened. What is he going to do? And so Herod called in the wise men and he said, where is this king to be born? Where is he? And he said, and they asked him that. And he says, well, let me, let me consult with my advisors and I'll get back to you. So he called all the, the wise men and the scriptural uh, scholars and said, where is he to be born? And 
And they told him, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem. So he went back and told the Magi he's going to be born in Bethlehem. But he says, this is what I want you to do. Would you come back and tell me when you have identified him so that I can go down and worship him too? Well, that sounds pretty spiritual, doesn't it? But we know it wasn't that. He wanted to kill him. So the wise men went to Bethlehem, worshipped Jesus, and then was warned by an angel to go home another way. We also read that then uh, Joseph in a dream was warmed and he warned and he took Jesus to Egypt. When Herod found out that they had tricked him, he flew into a rage and he went down to kill all the baby boys, two years old and under, in Bethlehem. Unthinkable evil. Unless, of course, you're Herod, and then it's just another day at the office. Unspeakable evil. What we know of the villages in Bethlehem of the day, there were probably 20 or 30 little boys, two years old and under, and he slaughtered them. I cannot think of the anguish and the horror felt in Bethlehem. I can't imagine being a parent in that city. Not unlike the days of their captivity in Egypt, when Pharaoh killed all the little boys. Gruesome disregard for human life. We won't go there, but we see that so much in our country today. The disregard to the unborn and and babies. So that's the story. Now let's go a little deeper. Let's see what lies really underneath this story. We are tempted when we read the account of Herod here in Matthew to think that Herod's wickedness was an isolated thing, that uh, it was an occurrence, a bad guy protecting his throne. This is history. But in reality, it's just one more event of the cosmic battle of the ages. One more attempt of many attempts to prevent the birth of the Messiah. For there to be a story of redemption, there has to be a dark side. There has to be a reason why we need redeemed. At Christmas time, we tend to only think about the warm, kind of fuzzy, glowy things, you know, family coming in and the warm fire and presents and all that. But we need to remember that there was a reason why Jesus came to this earth. There's a reason why he came to bring peace and goodwill toward men. My friends, we live in a war zone, a war zone that we often don't recognize. To understand what is occurring in the stable, we need to go back in history long before the Christmas story, long before Bethlehem, travel back in time before time began. The reason Jesus left heaven and dwelt among men because there is a cosmic battle of good and evil between God and Satan. The Bible tells us that before creation, God created all the angels. And at the head of those angels was an archangel named Lucifer. And Lucifer decided that he wanted to rebel against God, to usurp God's authority, and be king himself. And so he led a rebellion against God, and God squashed it and threw Lucifer out of heaven along with a third of the angels. 
That initiated the cosmic conflict of the ages. We come to time and creation and we find that Satan sought to destroy the apple of God's eye. The man and the woman that he created and he put into the garden. And so Satan tempted Eve and she led Adam and Adam sinned by disobeying their commander in chief. By changing their allegiance from God and his kingdom to the kingdom of darkness. Even though it was unbeknownst to them what would happen. They willingly and purposefully disobeyed their king. And at this point, God stepped in and began revealing to them the plan of redemption. How he would bring back the children of Adam. He set about to rescue for himself a people for his own possession. To restore his image in men and to renew the broken world. Listen as I read. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the fall initiated that long and bloody battle between God and his seed, and Satan and his seed. The son of the woman will ultimately destroy and crush the head of Satan. Any hope that Satan has of being like God, and being the authority, and being king. From that point on, Satan throws his efforts into preventing that seed from being born. From preventing that one who would come and crush his head. And throughout all of the Old Testament, we see Satan and his henchmen, the falling angels, the demons of hell. His demons doing everything they can to destroy any hope of this woman's seed being born. You need to recognize that the overarching story of the Old Testament is Satan and his henchmen, his evil ones, seeking to prevent the Messiah, the Christmas story, from ever occurring. We see this all throughout the Old Testament, the seed of the woman. Well, the only woman was Eve, right? And he had, she had two sons, Cain and Abel. So he encouraged Cain... To kill Abel, the one who had the righteous sacrifice, thinking, okay, now I've stopped the seed. It will not come. So God had Adam and Eve have Seth. And the Messiah would come from Seth's line. Satan's efforts were thwarted. There was a son of Seth by the name of Abraham, who would be God's chosen line for the seed of the woman, the Messiah. And out of Abraham's totally dysfunctional family, totally dysfunctional, would come this Messiah. We read of Isaac and Jacob, the patriarchs. We read of Joseph. We follow the Jews through their captivity in Egypt and their struggles through the wilderness and their entry into the promised land. Being battled the whole way. Satan always seeking to destroy this family and this nation. The battle of the ages. We read of God's promise to David, King David, that the Messiah would come from his line. We see how both kings of Judah and Israel 
will disobey and be disciplined by captivity in the foreign lands and how Judah, the tribe from which Messiah would be born, somehow inexplicably. How do you explain the king of Persia saying, y'all going back home? When they were in exile and he sent them home in the days of Nehemiah and Ezra. How do you explain that in any other way except God said, I want my people back in the promised land. It's all the story of Christmas, my friends. All along the way, we find God guiding and protecting his line, teaching them what it means to be God's people. At the same time, Satan is fighting him the whole way. Let me give you two examples. The first one is King Joash. Backstory. God told Jehu, the king of Israel, to wipe out all the remnants of the previous king that you will recognize as Ahab and his wife Jezebel. They were evil in the sight of the Lord. So Jehu killed Azahiah, King Azahiah of Judah. Back that up a little bit. Who was King Azahiah's mom? Her name was Athaliah. Now, I don't know if you guys want, y'all who are pregnant, want to name your daughter Athaliah, but I would suggest not. Because she wasn't a good person. Because she was the daughter of King Ahab and Jezebel. Married to Azahiah's father, King Joram, and they had Azahiah. When Jehu killed Azahiah, then Athaliah, his mom, took over the government of Judah. She was so zealous for control, she then killed all her family. Her sons, her daughters, her grandchildren. For control of Judah. She killed them all. Save one little baby. And his name was Joash. Her sister. Azahiah's sister. Hid Joash in the temple. For six years she hid him. When the time was right. They brought him out. And at the ripe old age of seven years old. He became king of Judah. Why do I bring this story? It's because. The line of David, from which the seed of the woman would come, was down to one little baby. Satan thought, I've got this. I've got him. The seed's not going to be born now, but God knew all along. And he says, nope, I am going to protect Joash. My purpose will stand. You remember the story of Queen Esther? How the Jews were in exile in Persia? And this bad man, Haman, the advisor to the king, tricked the king into uh, pronouncing an edict against Jerusalem, that, or against the Jews, that you would be able to slaughter the Jews without any, any repercussions. And then steps in this beautiful woman by the name of Queen Esther, or Esther, who became his queen and risked her own life for the sake of her people. 
so that God's people would not be destroyed and wiped out. God's purposes will stand. You need to see that Herod and his attempt against Jesus, his attempt at killing the Messiah, was not a solitary event experienced in isolation, but it was just the last piece in a long panorama of the story of the Scriptures. The cosmic battle of the ages between God and Satan. It's a beautiful story of God's sovereignty and trust. So, how do we apply this? It seems so long ago and so far away. Let me suggest three things that I think we can glean from this story. First thing is that discernment is needed. God's people need to be discerning. There are many who use the language of Christianity for their own benefit. They want you to buy what they're selling. And they use the name of Jesus and spirituality to sell it. My friends, anybody can use the language of Christianity. That doesn't make you a Christian. That doesn't make you a follower of Jesus. Herod came to the wise men and adopted the language of spirituality that I might worship him with you. When all along his motives were evil. The wise men, well... They were wise, but they too were tricked. So for you and I, we really need discernment in determining if what somebody is saying is truly the truth. A couple examples. There are those of you who are single in our midst. May I just say that not everyone who says they're a Christian, is a Christian. You will meet those who want to have a relationship with you. And they know that the only way that they may have a relationship with you is is if they're a Christian. And they will don the language of spirituality. I've seen it time and time again. And they will try to trick you to say that I am a Christian. But my friends, what do their hearts say? What does their behavior say? Don't be gullible. If they don't respect you, and may I say, if they don't respect your body, and if they're not a repentant person, if they don't confess their sins, dump them. Run from them as a dad and a grandfather and a pastor for all these years. Save yourself some grief. All who say they are Christian are not necessarily Christian. The second one, trust God. He will accomplish what He sets out to do so you can trust Him. Herod could scheme, and he could plan, and he could work all the 
elements in his situation. But God's plan went through unaltered. It didn't change one bit. Herod wasn't nearly as powerful as he thought he was. Satan in all his scheming and planning cannot stop or even hinder one moment of God's plan. In a world of evil and suffering, sometimes, my friend, it is hard to see. It is hard to see that God is indeed working His plan. Since His first coming, we've seen tyrants and dictators seeking to overthrow His kingdom and stamp out His people. They were no more powerful than Herod standing against our king. They failed in their attempts to usurp His authority, and His kingdom just marched right on. He is our king. He's the one that we serve. So when things get the darkest, we need to remember that Herod wasn't all that powerful against our king. Tyrants, dictators, social constructs, culture, anything you say will bow their knee ultimately before King Jesus. To the people of Judah, Herod must have seemed incredibly powerful and all hope must have been gone. As we say often around here, God is still on His throne. He's still on His throne. There's nothing in your life that is out of His control. All the bad, all the evil, all the suffering are somehow part of God's plan to bring good for you and glory to His name. You know, I can look back and, and the darkest periods of my life There didn't seem to be a lot of hope. I didn't see way, the way out of those circumstances. But in every single circumstance, everyone, God was still there. And somehow, some way, He used that situation to vault me into a new situation. Where I could serve him faithfully. Didn't deserve it. Didn't do anything to bring it on. God was the one who was working in it. Now, now when I face difficult situations, I have to look at the scriptures. What I understand to be true about God. But then I also look back at experience. And you know, if experience tells me anything to this point. Is that God is still on his throne. And the same is true for you. Be discerning. God is still on His throne. But third, is the Herod within. As much as I hate to think about me having any likeness to Herod at all, I must admit that I have some similarities with Herod. And so do you. Herod's obsession was to be king. To be powerful, all-powerful, to have all authority. And he would go to any length to assure that his authority was not challenged. He was a control freak. In the worst way, because he had power. He would go to any length to assure that his authority wasn't threatened. I have to admit to you that... There are many ways that I want to be king of my own life 
and my own situations. I want to be king. I want to exert my sovereignty over people and my situations. I have this inborn resistance to authority. I'm hardwired that way. And so are you. There's this inborn impulse that tells me, that rises up in me, that says, you can't tell me what to do. If you claim control over me, my initial response will be, oh yeah, and so is yours. Comes up in little ways, and frankly, I hope that I'm pretty good at hiding it. (laughs) It doesn't mean that it's not still there. But Jesus claims to have sovereignty over my life. Jesus claims to be my king. My absolute and authoritative king. I love the way Tim Keller writes. I love almost anything that he writes. But he said, King's Herod reaction to Christ is in this sense a picture of us all. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. It is a claim of absolute authority, a summons to unconditional loyalty, and it is inevitably triggers a deep resistance within the human heart. This dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to, even hatred of, the claims of God in our lives. We create gods of our liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. If the account of Herod's treachery teaches us anything in the Christian story, it's that we have a lust for control. I want to be in control. And his actions are but a sign of my own natural resistance to the claim of God on my life. If Jesus is the Son of God, born on that Christmas day long ago, then I have lost the right to be the king of my life. I can't be king and Jesus be king. Nothing so marks a believer, a citizen of the kingdom, more than a willingness, yea, even a yearning to bow their knee before King Jesus. That is the mark of a believer. Not that you have a head full of theology. I don't care about your theology if you won't bow your knee before King Jesus. Without the Spirit's work in your life, you are not going to have that desire. Even those of us who are redeemed, still, there's some unredeemed humanness that clings to us, that Herod within. They wants so bad to have authority and control. But my friends, the way of Jesus is the way of humility and submission. Jesus was born in the most humblest of circumstances. He was born in a barn. Having nothing. And he lived a life of humility and meekness. In his own words he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My friends, hear me. The way of Jesus is diametrically opposed to the way of Satan and of Herod and to my rebellious heart. 
It is only the humble, the ones who come before Jesus, bowing their knees and saying, whatever you want me to do, I will do. Those are the poor in spirit. And those are the ones who will be a part of the kingdom of God. So as we wrap up, this message for us today is a message of hope. On a global perspective, evil and evil people are not omnipotent. This child, born in the humblest of settings, he is king. And no one will stand before him. Not Satan, not his seed. And there is coming a day. There is coming a day when he's not going to come in humility anymore. He's going to come in power and strength and authority. And he's going to take charge and he's going to clean house. And when I see evil and oppression in our day, I can still have hope because one day it's not going to be that way. But then on a personal perspective, there's hope for us who see that Herod within. There's hope. There's joy. And our hope is in Jesus. He came into this world to give us hope. To free us from the bondage of our love of power and control and authority. He came to free us from all of that. He came to free us from our resistance to His reign. He tells us if we will but bow our knee before King Jesus. To submit our authority to His. That we can be His child. And there's hope for us that we will learn to love and appreciate His reign in our hearts. Willpower is not going to change your heart. We're not talking behavior motivation. We're talking a new heart. Only Jesus can give you that heart. Let's pray. My Father, I thank you for bringing this villain into the Christmas story. I thank you because it gives me a glimpse of my own heart. I ask for myself and for all those who who are open, I ask that you forgive us where we seek to be king and I pray oh God that you give us hearts that long to bow our knee before King Jesus this is our only prayer today and we pray in Jesus name amen When we celebrate communion, we are actually fighting that Herod within, that desire for control and authority in our lives. We look again and again at the cross of Jesus because he is the one who purchases our pardon. You see, there are no proud or arrogant people at the foot of the cross. It's only those who depend on solely upon him. Being a Christian, by definition, is looking away from myself and my own efforts and looking to Jesus alone as my only hope. Trying harder simply won't work.
It's only looking to Jesus. Looking for forgiveness. Looking for the joy that He gives. Purchased on the cross of Christ. It is said that on the night that He was betrayed that He took the bread. After having given thanks, He he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. Christian life is lived solely and purposely in light of the cross. Our only hope is the blood and the broken body of our Savior Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you follow Christ, if you've bowed your knee before King Jesus, you're welcome to this table to celebrate the cross, the broken body, and the shed blood. If you're here this morning and you do not believe that you've ever trusted Him in that way, you've never bowed your knee before King Jesus, let me encourage you, just take this time to contemplate what has been said today about Jesus and the cross. And we long for the day we can welcome you to that table. So with those things in mind, please stand. Uh, Y'all, please come take your place. Come to the table.